0: Good morning. Good morning. 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 I'm Pastor Jay. It is my privilege to open God's Word. and I invite you to either turn your device or your paper Bible to the end of your New Testament. Small letter we call 1 Peter or 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning we are talking about leadership in the church. That's what Peter's talking about, so that's what we're talking about. As we continue in our series Going through this short, inspired book of Scripture, we're taking it section by section. And today we come to chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, shepherding God's flock. And here's Peter's message. I'm going to give you a spoiler right up front. Here's his message. Here's his theme. Here's where he's going. What he's telling us today is that a godly church is absolutely impossible without godly leadership. A godly church is absolutely impossible without godly leadership. Unfortunately, a lot of churches do not take this section of Scripture seriously, and they allow anyone into leadership. And that is the beginning of the demise of any church or any congregation. And so Peter's theme here is very important, and he's telling us pretty much everything rises or falls based on the leadership and the role, especially when it comes to the role of elders, those in task with leading the congregation. One of the things that Becky and I so appreciate about our church is the health and the strength of our elder board here. When we first came a number of years ago, that caught our attention and has continued to be something we are so very grateful for. You need to know you have a very healthy elder board here and led well by godly men along with their brides who serve beside them, but it is such a blessing, and it is so important, and we're going to see why here this morning. As we dive into this section, as we do with our sermon each week, Peter is addressing two groups, and so we're simply going to look at the two groups he talks about, and we're going to look a little bit at the fuller picture of leadership from the New Testament to complete the picture, but the two groups he's addressing, and we'll spend most of our time on the first group because that takes up the bulk of this section. Peter is reminding the elders, a reminder to the elders, and then secondly, a reminder to those who are younger, and we'll look at that shortly. But first of all, we're going to spend the most of our time this morning on a reminder to the elders. This will take up verses 1 through verse 4, where Peter addresses this. Now, I'm going to take a step back for just a minute and talk about leadership in the local church. One of the perennial problems when it comes to talking about leadership in the local church is for God's people to confuse biblical leadership with business leadership. And there is overlap, but there are also significant differences. And when churches merely adopt a business model, a business paradigm for leadership, and then just transplant it into the church, lots of things usually happen, and many of them are not good. And it's not that business model is necessarily bad. There's a lot of good things about it, and there are some business aspects that elders have to take care of. But when that becomes our primary directive, that's when things get off base. So here's how the business model looks when it's transplanted into a local church. Typically, the pastor is viewed as kind of the CEO, and then maybe other staff, CFO or COO, and then the elder board tends to view themselves as a board of directors, Meaning that their main focus, their primary focus, becomes policy development and facilities and spreadsheets and financials and hiring and firing, etc. And that that's where they put the bulk of their time and their energy every time they're together. And unfortunately, I have been in contexts in which that becomes the case. That will always lead a church off stray. Now. Those are areas that an elder board is responsible for and to make sure are being handled well, no doubt. But the problem is this. When you come to the New Testament, while elders certainly have oversight over the business aspects of the church and they need to be done well, in the New Testament, the elders are primarily defined and primarily described as functioning in pastoral roles. In fact, there aren't two sets of words for the pastor and elders. In the New Testament, they're the same word. Same words surround those. They're the same office for all practical purposes. Elders slash pastor biblically. And that's, that's a key. And a key assumption is this. And Peter does not mention this, but it's certainly behind what he's saying. A key assumption in all of our discussion Is that those serving as elders, those serving as leaders, are people who have been born again? They know Christ, His Holy Spirit indwells them, they are alive in Christ, and they have been saved. And so I just I want to mention that as a backdrop because anytime Paul discusses leadership or Peter, that's certainly in the background. With that, what are the main words translated as leader or as elder? A lot of you know, some of you know, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, common Greek. There are two primary words in the original Greek that are translated elder in most English translations. So I'm going to do a little heavy lifting here for a minute, but this is very important. There's two primary words in the original Greek translated in most English translations that just come in the English word elder. The two primary words, and Peter uses one of them here today, and the first one is presbyteros. presbyteros, from which we get our English word presbyterian. If you come from a presbyterian background, that's where the origin of the name comes from. The other Greek word used that is translated elder in English is the Greek word episkopos, from which we get our English word either episcopal, like the episcopal church, or episcopalian. Those are the two words, presbyteros, episkopos. And functionally, they're synonyms. That's the key. They have have a lot of semantic overlap. And Peter uses the first one, presbyteros, in verse 1. So if you have an English translation there, to the elders among you. He's using the root word there, presbyteros. I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will share, will also share in the glory to be revealed. So he's using that very first word. Now here's the... Here's the challenge when it comes to these two Greek words, presbyteros and episkopos. They're actually more job titles than they are job descriptions. That's the challenge with them. They're really more of a job title than a job description. And so that begs the question, well, if that's the title, elder, if that's the the name, what exactly is it they're to do? What, What do elders do? What are they called to do? Where should they spend the bulk of their time and energy as they serve in the church? And here Peter helps us in the first part of verse 2 with another word that should be familiar to us and is commonly translated as pastor or shepherd. And it's a verb, poimeno, to shepherd. Verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care watching over them not because you must but because you are willing as God wants you to be so that verb be shepherds poimeno comes from the root word poimen which just means a shepherd plain old shepherd it can either be a literal shepherd out in the field with his sheep and goats or the word is also applied to Jesus the great shepherd here's the critical point okay this is where we're heading when the Bible wants to describe the primary role of an elder, the primary focus of an elder, and the work elders are called to, it uses the noun and the verbal form of shepherd as the, in the broader imagery of shepherding to, to, to describe what it is elders are called to do. Here's a verse out of Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's giving a farewell charge here. He's, this is the Apostle Paul, in Acts 20, he's leaving Ephesus, which was a huge metro city, and it had a new thriving congregation. He's getting ready to leave, and he gives a charge to the elders there, those, the leaders of that church, and he says this, keep watch over yourselves, so he's talking to the elders, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So there's Paul's charge to what we would call the elders at Ephesus or the Ephesian elders. That's their job description is to shepherd the flock there in Ephesus. So that brings up a related question. If the primary role of elders is described in pastoral terms of shepherding, Well then, biblically, what is it that shepherds are doing as they lead churches in the New Testament? And here there are four primary duties we see that elders are doing in the New Testament as they shepherd a flock. This is to be their primary focus. Those four areas, and these come out over and over again, especially in the book of Acts, but also in Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus and in Peter. The four areas elders are to be involved leading that local church in are preaching, teaching, protecting, and caring, which are pretty much analogous to what a shepherd does, a literal shepherd, with a flock of sheep and goats. Same kind of thing. Feeding them, protecting them, caring for them. That's why the imagery of shepherding is so apropos here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these one at a time to fill out Peter's picture here of what elders are called to do. This is really important stuff. Young people, sooner you get this, the better as you mature and get into churches someday as adults to understand what elders are to do and not do and what they're called to do. This is very critical because when churches go bad, it almost always begins at the leadership level. And that's why this is critical. So the first area we see in the New Testament that elders are to be shepherding is in the preaching of the word. I'd like to go back to... If you go back in your New Testament just a little bit into the book of 2 Timothy, all you got to do is put it in reverse and back up just a little bit, 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is reminding Timothy, you say, well, who's Timothy? Okay, Timothy is a young pastor in what is today Western Turkey in a thriving congregation in this huge city of Ephesus. Paul is writing to him. And he's reminding him of two things here in chapter 3. One, actually one reminder in chapter 3, and then another in chapter 4. Chapter 3, he's reminding Timothy here of the authority of Scripture. Chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most definitive verses for the authority of the Bible is 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul writes, all Scripture, every Scripture, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work so the first thing paul does is remind this young pastor that the scriptures are authoritative why because they've been breathed out by god that's why churches that believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, put such a high priority on making sure that the Bible is infused into everything they do, because it's the living Word of God. It's interesting now, based on that, in chapter 4, Paul gives a charge to this young pastor. Because he says, you're holding the very words of God. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4 comes the charge. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So because the scriptures are God-breathed, because they're authoritative, here's your charge, Timothy, as a pastor, as an elder. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke. And encourage. Encourage with great patience and careful instruction. What is preaching? Let me ask you that. What is preaching? What is its role in a local church? Here is an uninspired. What I mean by that is this: is not a biblical definition. It's my wording, in other words. But here's what preaching is biblically. It is the regular, weekly, public declaration proclamation and teaching of God's Word to the people of God, to feed them, comfort them, rebuke them, challenge them, and to encourage them, meaning the preacher and their, those there. All of us need to sit under the Word of God. All of us are under the preaching of the Word of God. Why? Because it is breathed out from God. It is the first primary role of an elder to be involved in. Now, it does not mean that every single person serving as an episkopos or a presbyteros is preaching. It doesn't mean that every elder preaches or necessarily every slash elder pastor preaches. It does mean that the preaching in the weekly public gathering of the church is done, however, by someone occupying the role of an episkopos or a presbyteros. You see... So not every elder is preaching, but when the preaching is occurring, it's done by one of the elders slash pastors. That's very clear. We, were, we just got back from two weeks out west, uh, seeing family out in Colorado and South Dakota. And one of the benefits when I go on vacation is the privilege to sit in other churches and hear preaching. What was un- unfortunate on this trip, we went to two biblical congregations in two different states over the last couple Sundays. Neither of them had preaching in the services. And we were shocked. First service, you had a report, the preaching time, that 30, 40 minute slot was given to a report from their annual denominational meeting that had just occurred. Interesting. I took some notes. I learned some things about that denomination. Had nothing to do with what the Bible calls elders to do in the public preaching of the Word of God in the weekly service. It was not there at all. There was no public reading of Scripture. There was no public confession of sin. And there was no preaching. Whatever else was going on, that was not a biblical worship service. Then last weekend, we were in another good biblical congregation for the most part. And there was no preaching. We sat there again and said, this is week number two. Instead, in that church, they just had a mission trip come back, mission team from Mexico. They gave a very interesting, engaging report for 45 minutes, but it replaced the sermon. Now, there's a place for a mission trip feedback. We like them here. We send out lots of teams. We love to hear their report back, but not to replace the sermon. It's too easy to sidestep and then remove it when the Bible puts it as a key factor in the life of the worship service. That is what preaching is. Elders are to be accountable and responsible to make sure that the feeding and the preaching and the life of the church is there. It also raises, by the way, one other very important fact about elders. If you go back to 1 Timothy, just one more letter back, again from the Apostle Paul to this young pastor in Ephesus. One other aspect about elders that needs to be addressed to this morning, this is very important. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 both clearly affirm that the r- role of episkopos and the role of a presbyteros is to be filled with a man. Now, for some of us, that's that's a bit of a shock. I come out of a denomination that that wasn't the case. And the new. Let me say it this way: the New Testament is very clear, very clear, that women serve in leadership capacities and did so in the New Testament. And I can say here, we have women serving in a number of areas, very important areas. I have women on my staff, very thankful for their gifting and their leadership. But when you come to the pastoral epistles, Paul is very clear in 1 Timothy and Titus, that when it comes to the role of a presbyteros, or an episkopos, elders, in the local church, it's to be filled by a man. Some of you may be saying, well, why is that the case? And the reason it's the case is that women are not to have authority over a man in the public worship service. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. So if you look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, Paul gives us the reason for this. And what's important to understand, it's a theological reason, not a cultural reason. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Why? Always look for the why. When God gives command, He almost always somewhere gives the why behind it. Here it is. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He also goes on to describe that Adam wasn't the first one deceived. It was Eve. Although Adam was accountable because he was standing there. And apparently he didn't say much. But the theological reason goes back to Genesis. As we often say, so much goes back to Genesis. That's why it's so important to view Genesis as historically accurate as literal space-time history. We believe in a literal Adam and a literal Eve, the first biological ancestors of the human race. And because God put an authority level in Adam as the leader, we see the New Testament picking that up and so the whole point of the headship of the husband goes back to Genesis and the creation account. So just to be clear, the headship of the male, of the husband, has nothing to do with, in, with talent or ability or intrinsic worth. The issue of male headship has everything to do with the operation of authority in the home and the church. Say it one more time. It has everything to do with the operation of authority in home and the church. That's just the way God set up the universe. That's what he said. Husbands are to submit to Christ. Wives are to submit to husbands. Children are to submit to parents. You see, there's the pattern. The pattern is very clear in Scripture. And Paul says, those who occupy the role of a presbyteros or an episkopos, who are doing the leading and the preaching, are to be men. For a theological reason. What's the second area that elders are called to take care of? And that is the teaching of the word. And it's a different word set in the Bible from the preaching of the word. Preaching is the public heralding of the word of God. Teaching is, takes place when preaching is occurring. But it's also a separate activity in the church. And one of the things Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 is elders are to be able to teach. Now, most of what Paul says for the qualification of elders is very interesting. In 1 Timothy 3, most of it are character qualities. But he does mention one task. And that one task, in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, that Paul says is a qualification for an elder is able to teach. Now, it does not mean that elders are called to participate in the public teaching or the pulpits But it does mean that elders are called to participate in the teaching ministry of the church. There's a lot of ways that takes place. For example, leading a community group or teaching an adult elective or being involved with our nexus, our youth ministry, and maybe being a small group leader there. Or it could be the preaching of the word or teaching an adult elective or teaching Sunday school for kids or being involved in Awana and being involved teaching in that way point is, elders are to be involved in the teaching ministry of the church and they're also to be involved mentoring and discipling and developing the next generation of elders. In 2 Timothy 2 2, we read this. Paul says to Timothy, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will then pass them on to others. So another one of the job of an elder is to be discipling and mentoring that next generation of leaders. So Preaching, that is a key role of being an elder. Secondly, teaching. Elders are to be involved teaching in the life of the church. Thirdly, protecting. Protecting. Elders are called to protect the flock, and there's a lot of ways this takes place. One of the main ways, I'm going to talk about something here that is a jolt for some, is something historically called church discipline. Church discipline. It's not a popular thing culturally, but it's a very important thing biblically. Very interesting. When you go back and read folks like Martin Luther, or John Knox, or Erick Zwingli, or John Calvin, or you read the Puritans, very clearly they lay out that one of the hallmarks of a biblical church is a church where the leaders practice church discipline. Very important. and You see that in some of the confessions of the faith. You say, well, what is that? Well, it's described in passages like 1 Corinthians 5 or 1 Timothy 5. What is it? It's when the leaders come alongside church members who are involved in ongoing unrepentant sin. Or when a leader has gotten involved in scandalous sin and needs to be removed. We've had both occur here. But the point is that the elders are to warn, protect, and even if necessary, remove church members at times. The word for that historically is excommunicate when there is no repentance. I can tell you from experience, it is one of the most difficult aspects of being an elder and also one of the most important. Because a church that does not address sin in the membership is a church that will go off base biblically. And when you look at some of the historic denominations in America that are today in rapid freefall decline in attendance, you can trace it back to leaders who did not take sin seriously. And now today we'll openly ordain people that are living outside of wedlock openly ordained, practicing homosexuals, they don't care because they're not taking the directive to protect the flock seriously. And protection is clear. By the way, what are the main goals of church discipline? A lot of people get confused on this. Let me give them to you. There are three biblically. Why would elders get involved in confronting unrepentant sin? Well, there's three reasons. Number one, protect God's name. Because the church is to hold up a higher standard. It is to look different than the culture around us. Number two, beyond protecting God's name, is protecting that flock. Very important that elders are in protecting the flock. And number three, for the hopeful repentance and restoration of that individual or a couple. Those are the three main goals. Protection of God's name, protection of that local church, and then hopefully for repentance and restoration. A couple years ago, the free church, evangelical free church, our denomination took a survey nationally of local free churches and asked, what are four or five of the most common sins you do church discipline for? And it was interesting to see the answers. They were, I'll give you the top four adultery, divorce with no grounds, with no grounds, three, a, Bitter and unforgiving spirit. And fourthly, gossip and divisiveness. So these local churches that were surveyed said those are the four top sins, unrepentant sins, that they ended up disciplining in the last year or two. Adultery, divorce with no grounds, unforgiving, bitter spirit, gossip, and divisiveness. And here's the sad part. Most people that go through church discipline at least my experience is, in talking to other leaders, don't end up repenting. But some do. We had a situation several years ago in our church in Michigan, very challenging season of ministry, put it mildly, where we in a three-year period had to do church discipline on four different missionaries. Four of our beloved missionaries in that local congregation that were serving overseas in different areas uh, One was for insubordination on the field, open, blatant insubordination on the field. One was for a pattern of public lying and unrepentance. And two for adultery and sexual sin. The encouraging thing was one of the couples ended up repenting and being restored. And that happened just a couple years ago when Becky and I were in another state and got word that this couple wanted to see us. We had, we had been involved helping them get to the mission field. We had mentored them and discipled them. And then the husband committed adultery about 15 years ago. They had to be pulled off the field by our elder board. And they had, to be, they had to go through church discipline. And they didn't take it well. And they got very angry at our elders. And especially at Becky and I. Because we had helped mentor them. And then two years ago we got word they wanted to see us after 15 years. And so we had the privilege uh, on my sabbatical two years ago of seeing this couple. And we wondered, you know, what's going to be like? And it was awesome. And as we sat and had dinner with him, the husband said something amazing. We were sitting there and we were saying, so what happened and what's been happening? And he said, well, I'll tell you the most interesting thing that happened. I got saved. You might say, I thought he was a missionary. He was. He wasn't only a missionary, he was the leader of our team in that country that we had helped install. Becky and I helped install him. We helped get him involved. We helped put him into leadership of the mission team in that city, in that country. And he wasn't a Christian. And he committed adultery, and he was unrepentant, and he got angry, and the whole thing went over the cliff. And here he is 15 years later, embracing us, thanking us, and saying he'd become a Christian. And it was very evident he had light in his eyes and he was a different human being. So occasionally, be encouraged, church discipline does what it was intended to do. And I shudder to think, what if we hadn't done that well? He might have never come to faith in that matter. So that's the third area elders are to be involved in when it comes to shepherding. They're to be preaching. They're to be involved in the teaching ministry of the church. They're to be protecting the flock. And the fourth area that shepherding would cover is caring for the flock. Look at verse 2, back to 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. So elders are tasked with caring for the flock, meaning what? Of loving on and praying for people. Touching them and being involved and being among them. That's why Paul says in Acts chapter 20, Keach, keep watch over yourselves and on the flock that God has given you and be overseers. And the bottom line is elders are called to lead and to love. It's a huge responsibility that requires holiness and humility. That's why he says in verses 3 and 4, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So elders are called to lead in love. It's a huge responsibility. It requires holiness and humility. And again, I I don't know if you've ever seen an actual shepherd at work. Some of you may have. But they're very interactive with their sheep. Very interesting to watch. A few years ago, Ben and my son Ben and I were in Ireland and we were hiking and we were sitting on a hillside one day, just kind of resting. And a shepherd all of a sudden appeared in, the, in a, a valley right below us. We could, a couple hundred yards away, with a flock. And so we watched for the next 10, 15 minutes as he was moving his flock. And it was interesting. He, had the, he had, had the sheep dogs running around the flock to keep them together. And then he is the shepherd who was right in their midst. And he is highly interactive with the sheep. When you watch shepherds at work, they're walking with their sheep. They're nudging their sheep. They're talking to their sheep. And they're calling them by name and they're caring for them. And so one of the key roles of an elder is to be among the sheep. One of the things we look for here as we're looking around for new elders, praying about it, is we're looking for a track record of hands-on ministry, of hands-on leadership, so that we know that person and that couple is invested in our church family key role of an elder. So shepherding in the New Testament for those who are episcopos or presbyteros for elders involves the preaching of the word, overseeing that the teaching of the word throughout the whole life of the church. And then not only that, but protecting the flock and then caring for the flock. And again, it's very analogous to what a literal shepherd is doing, feeding, protecting, caring. That's why the imagery of shepherding is so very valuable. And again, it doesn't mean that elders aren't looking at policies and financials and the, the staff. But that means that is not their primary focus. Meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. They are primarily described functioning in shepherding roles. Now that brings us lastly to a reminder to those who are younger. Verses 5 and 6. In verse 5. Peter now addresses a second group. And he says, to those who are younger, verse 5, in the same way you who are younger, question is, who's he talking to here? And there are different views, most of them similar, but his challenge to them is submit yourselves to your elders. Probably it means the office of elder, but it also could mean just older saints in the church. Those of you who are younger, make sure you are respecting and submitting to those who are older. That is so countercultural in Western culture, where we put youth above age. And in traditional cultures and in much sort of the world, that is exactly the opposite. And if you've stepped into those cultures or those situations, you will see it immediately. But the question is, who are the younger here? Grammatically, interesting, the word younger in the original Greek is a masculine plural adjective. And so some translations have actually said to the younger men. That may be, or it may be younger people in general. One clue here is in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, the word all is used both in Greek and English. In the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. So because of that, it feels to me like Peter's talking to a wider group than just younger men and probably the younger in general, which would make sense that he's addressing now the younger people in the congregation and having a need for humility, especially in a Middle Eastern culture where respect for the elderly and respect for those who are older is so ingrained in the culture. And in this sense, he's calling the young to be subject to and submit to their elders. The word he uses, by the way, in verse 5, when he says, submit is a military term used in secular literature of the day. It's a very strong term. In the same way, you who are younger, be in submission to. It's a word that means to line up under authority. It's a strong word. It's a a jolt to egalitarian cultures like ours here in the West. But Peter is calling everyone in the church to put aside self-promoting pride, to put aside self-promotion and to submit to their leaders, to be respectful of those God has placed as shepherds around them. Now, sometimes a text leads naturally to a summons, and here the preacher's work is done for him because in verses 6 and 7, we come to the summons today, and there are two of them. So when we ask, when the sermon's over, well, what's, this, what's the summons here? Here it is. There's two of them. In verse 6, number 1, We are to humble ourselves before the Lord. It's a direct command. It's in the imperative mood. And it says this, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So verse six offers a beautiful picture, friends, of what it means to know God, to walk with God and submit to our leaders. And it begins by humbling ourselves before God and fearing God and owning our sin and believing in Jesus. And the Bible says the only way to do this is to surrender to Christ as Savior and embrace the gospel and believe the good news about Jesus. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 10. So if you've never heard this before, here's how to know God. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how humbling ourselves begins. And then it continues by humbling ourselves to the leadership of our church. And then the second summons this morning is in verse 7. And it's for everyone and that is cast your anxiety on the Lord. The Bible recognizes anxiety as a category of life. Some more prone to it than others, but it exists, all of us deal with it to some degree. Peter's saying, cast your anxiety on him because and I love this verse because it ends with a promise, starts with a command, ends with a promise. What's the reason? Because he cares for you. So the reason a true Christian can take all their anxiety to the Lord is because he's the ultimate shepherd. We have our human shepherds that we're accountable to and to be encouraging and supporting. But the ultimate reason we can take our anxiety to the great shepherd is because he is the ultimate shepherd. And one of the benefits of knowing the ultimate shepherd and of being saved and having the Holy Spirit inside us is we have the promises of God. And this verse ends on a great promise. Take your anxiety to the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. If you're one of God's sheep, if you know Christ, if you've been born again, this is a great promise. And God's people, putting myself in that camp, we need to spend more time listening to God's promises. We need to repeat them to ourselves. We spend too much time listening to the broken tape in our brain. I can't do it. I'm a loser. This never goes right. Instead of fixating and focusing on God's promises. So very vital.